0: 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteous sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. May God add a blessing to His Word. Please be seated. This morning, I want to share a message with you that's entitled, Encouragements in the Midst of Suffering. Encouragements in the Midst of Suffering. Within our text this morning, Peter is now transitioning from being submission to authority to exhortation to his readers of the coming suffering that is about to come upon them or may have already been or already begun under Nero, Peter wrote his letter in A.D. 64. It's about the same time that Nero set fire, or uh, to Rome, and then blamed it on the Christians, which resulted in a persecution throughout the Roman Empire. And of course, Nero was the one that would take Christians and he would uh, impale them and then light them on fire and run his chariots around them. So it was very gross very harsh. He would also take them and put them into the, 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 the auditorium. I can't remember what they called that thing in Rome. Anybody remember what that's called? The big Colosseum. Should have been something that could have came to my mind. But uh, he would tend Christians in there and have them fend for themselves against gladiators and animals. And even the Roman citizens thought that to be harsh and cruel. And eventually that persecution led to sympathetic hearts in the Roman Empire that slowly Turned Roman Empire, Emperor Constantine, to the Lord. And so Nero at this time, Peter is basically warning his readers that it's coming and it may already be. And it's kind of a good warning for us, too. You know, we've had it really good in the United States. We haven't really suffered that much persecution. We haven't had that much suffering. However, it doesn't mean that the suffering and persecution that Peter is talking here, it just comes from the government and can come from friends and co-workers, and neighbors, people close to us, family members who reject our faith. I was talking with somebody um, last night about, and I, and I align with this in my own upbringing. Um, it's, it's funny how there's still, in, in 1980, a separation between two distinct faiths. And I had to get permission to actually play my French horn a part of a quartet for a Christmas concert in another church. I had to get permission from my mother and our priest. And so we know that divisions in family occur because of faith. It certainly happened in my family when I came to the Lord. And so there's suffering at that level too. But then there's also suffering as we we live this life in Christ, the battles that we face. And so our theme this morning in relationship to Peter's encouragements during the midst of suffering is living holy lives as we sojourn through an evil and hostile world. I said we have been privileged enough not to have to deal with what we're dealing with, but I guarantee you this sermon could be preached in Sudan. In Iraq, in Afghanistan, where our brothers and sisters are persecuted for the very faith that they hold in their heart, something we may not even be able to comprehend here. And so we will face it at some time. We've been warned of that. So then how do we stand in the face of this evil and hostile world that produces this persecution, that produces this suffering? Well, part of the answer to that question comes by way of the encouragements that Peter provides in this morning's text. And just within these four verses, Peter provides three distinct encouragements that we must be mindful of when we face that suffering, when we face that persecution that is coming. And the first one is. comes from the first two verses. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteous sake, you will be blessed. The first encouragement that Peter gives us is to do good in the face of persecution and suffering. To do good. All throughout Peter's letter, and we've been discovering this and learning this and examining this, he admonishes his readers and us as well that in the face of evil and persecution, we must do what is right. And here, Peter doubles down on that same subtheme by utilizing a word that is zealous. Now, it's interesting. Whenever we study the Word of God, when a word jumps out at you, there's a reason that word's there, and we need to study it and understand it. So what does zealous mean? Zealous means to eagerly be desirous of something, to pursue it with passion. It's more than just a cursory desire or passive pursuit. It's one that is focused, and what we are to be passionate and focused on is doing what is right in the face of persecution and suffering. And what is that good that we're talking about? It's living a life that's upright in Christ, that's righteous in Christ, that's honest, that's truthful, that's obedient, that's relying and desiring to reflect Christ. That is the good that Peter is talking about. And if you recall earlier in the verses that we discussed there in verse 8, we're not supposed to respond in kind to suffering and persecution. We're to respond in the manner of Christ. Now when it comes to good, doing good, like I said, being upright, righteous, honest, truthful, obedient... Right? And one that reflects Christ. Some people have a passive view towards that. They have a passive view of doing good in their Christian walk. Meaning it's more of an afterthought than a primary consideration in their daily activities. When they come to church, it's a different story. Right? Because they're focused. But as a result, when they're not focused in the world, they're not always disciplined in their life in Christ. They're not always cognitive of proper Christian conduct in every situation that they face at work, at home, in our neighborhoods, with our friends. And although they will not do what is evil on a grand scale, they will tolerate lower levels of evil and brush them off as that that big of a deal. And they'll even justify their behavior. I have a good friend of mine that I spoke to a couple weeks ago been uh, going to church for 20 years and as we're talking about the reason why he called me and we're discussing it he was talking about how he's a work in progress and after 20 years he still cusses he still drinks he still smokes he still doesn't always go to church and he says but don't worry i'm a work in progress and i understand that i do but when's the work going to start it's going to start with him being obedient to God and committing himself fully to the Lord. And that's what I communicated to him. His brother, I understand where you're coming from, man, and I understand that every day we have the tug of sin coming at us, but we must work. We must be obedient. We must resist. We must rely upon the Holy Spirit to do it in and through us. We can't just say, well, that's lower level. At least I'm not murdering people. Do you have hate in your heart? So we can't take a passive view towards being good. Others have a selfish view of doing good and that they do good when it's advantageous for them. Right? And they will only do good when they receive something in return. But if it costs them something, if if it demands discipline, if it requires some time away from the things that you love to do, uh, now we put on the brakes. And they justify it. I just don't have time for that. My schedule's busy. I had a neighbor one time who was a youth leader at another church here in town, and we were talking because I was also a youth leader at the time about ideas, you know, things that we could do. You know, she plucks ideas from me, I pluck ideas from her. And I knew her, I knew her very well. And we started talking about her personal life and how she likes to go out and party and drink and have a good time, but then turn right around on Sunday morning and teach youth on proper Christian character. I said, How do you balance those two? And she said, Well, I don't want to give up all my fun. That was very disappointing. Because she was mentoring young lives and proper Christian conduct. And I don't mean to judge her, but I was those are incompatible if you live your life in the world and then try to project Christ the next day in the church. It Does't work that way. You will either love the one or hate the other. You Can't have split devotions. Still others lack integrity in doing good, meaning that the light is on them, they do what is right. But when the light is not on them, they do as they wish, when no one's looking. Integrity means doing that which is right, even when no one is looking. And to add a theological aspect to that definition, is because God is always aware. He's always knowing. Brothers and sisters, we have been called to live a righteous life in Christ and to do good at all times because we serve an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present God. There is nowhere He is not. And so we must do good even when no one is looking. Because it's human nature, and I think it's human psychology, I might have to ask Adam on this, is that when we're alone, we think we really are alone. But we're not. We never are. Now, one of the reasons Peter is calling us to do good is because when we live good lives, we are less likely to suffer, meaning when we follow the laws of the land, We serve those who are appointed over us well and not rebel against them. Whether it be government or earthly masters, we will not be inviting suffering into our lives. And I think you understand what I'm saying there. If we break the law, if we are not obedient to our earthly masters, if we resist the government separate of defending our faith, we will suffer at the hands of that. I've seen it happen in people's lives. And I do a lot of interviews on people who don't realize that their actions have a dramatic effect on their lives and the peace that they have. They think their actions are justified in being rebellious or being unlawful or doing things. And it adds to their suffering, and they don't know why. So we be, we need to be cognizant of that. But if we, but at the same time, understand that we will suffer for Christ's sake. We will be persecuted because of our relationship with Christ. Listen to what Jesus says, and you will be hated. Not disliked or brushed off or "Eh, they're not going to warm up to you. No, it says, you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and to be put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. Jesus faced suffering and persecution from those who were the most convicted and challenged by it. Who opposed Jesus the most? The religious leaders. Because he was preaching something they didn't want to hear. They didn't want to contemplate. They didn't want to accept. And as a result, they continuously found ways to come against Christ until they were absolutely, or until somebody close to him made himself available in order to betray him, thus lead him to crucifixion. Those who were struck to the heart as to his teachings and parables were the ones that resisted him the most. It angered them because it was true. Ever had somebody come up and tell you that you're not doing something by way of Christian character in a loving way, and they're correcting you? And in the flesh you're like, who are you to come to me? And yet they're coming in love, sharing the gospel, reminding you of your obligations. We're going to suffer because we're a living testimony of Christ. And sometimes we will, be, we will remind others of the truth they don't want to accept. And they're going to respond in a hostile way. They're going to respond in a way that is not good, that is not kind, that is not loving. And if they're in a position of power over you, they will yield that power against you. And we are to do good when that happens. We're not to retaliate. We're not to send evil for evil, reviling for reviling. We covered that two weeks ago. We are to do good. And when we do good, we will be blessed. We will be blessed. Now that's counterintuitive, right? I'm suffering. I'm being persecuted. And you're going to tell me I'm going to be blessed? Are you kidding me? But we will be blessed when we suffer. And I understand that when we do suffer, there's no joy in that. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes being afflicted. But this is what we receive when we do, or when we do face persecution as far as blessings. The first one comes out of Romans. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Counted it all joy, James says, my brothers, when you meet trials and various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And in Colossians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We are citizens of heaven. We have been dispatched to this earth for a period of time to do the will of our Lord, and we will face persecution, and we will face suffering as a result of that. But we have an eternal hope. We have an eternal glory. We have an eternal inheritance, and that is what we live for for today. These are the blessings we will receive as a result of suffering for Christ. And we must allow suffering to do its perfect work. God will always use your suffering and persecution for His good. That's a promise. It's in His Word. He's not up there going, well, what's going on in Doris's life? I, well, who hasn't told me? He knows perfectly what's going on, and he will use it for good. We need to allow the Lord to use it for good. First Peter 5:10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's in full control. He will keep you. He will establish you. He will not abandon you. He will do everything He promised in the Word as a result of your persecution and suffering. And so let us do good. Let us be a good witness. Let us show Christ in the midst of our suffering and persecution. And so the first encouragement we have in the midst of suffering and persecution is to do that good. And the second one is found in verses 14 through 15. And that is to honor Christ in our hearts. So what does that mean? To honor Christ in our hearts. The term honor here means to sanctify. And sanctify means to separate unto, to separate unto. Therefore, to honor Christ, we are to separate our hearts to Christ. Sanctify them fully to Him. Now, you've heard me say this before. The heart is the center of who we are. It is the source of our desires, our passions, our actions, our thoughts. So when we face a trial, we may become vexed in our mind meaning troubled, meaning frustrated, or maybe we worry about what's going on. And this can affect our hearts. And this is why Peter is calling us to fully sanctify our hearts to Christ. Because he knows that if our hearts are not fully separated unto the Lord, the vexing of the mind can cause it to fear and trouble. In fact, it may have an opposite effect in that we can respond to suffering and persecution like I said before. We might just defer to our default mechanism, which is our flesh, and respond in kind. And that's not the righteousness of Christ. So then how do we keep our hearts fully sanctified? How do we do that? If you ever listen to my sermons, I'm always like, okay, well, how do you do that? You say that, but okay, show me because that's the, I'm kind of a checklist guy. So then how do we fully sanctify our hearts? Well, first we must have 100% full confidence in him. In him and his word and his promises. This is why reading and praying God's word is so important. And there are thousands of promises. I've heard some people say there are 1,750 promises. Then I heard 3,750 promises. Then I heard 5,000 promises. I did not have time this week to count them. But rest assured, God's Word is full of them. Specifically, for you. Individually. Do you know them? Do you stand on them? Remember that those promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. That's found in 1 Corinthians 20. Yes and amen in Jesus. Yes and amen in Jesus. Not, hmm, we'll see. Yes and amen in Jesus. You know, I've faced several trials and sufferings in my life, one most recently. And God has always given me a word. Lord how am I to face this? I'm vexed. Lord, help me. Give me strength. Give me clarity of mind. Keep my heart. He gives me a verse. And then I stand on it. Every time that whatever it is that's coming against me, I battle it with the Word of God. No different than Jesus did as our example when He was tempted in the desert. We combat Those things that come against us in the power of the Holy Spirit and by the defense of His Word. We use His Word, it is an offensive weapon against the enemy that comes against us. That's why we need to know the promises of God, we need to have it written in our hearts so that we can stand against that which prevails against us or attempts to prevail against us. Let us hold fast to the confession of hope for he who promised is faithful. Do we believe that? Amen, we do. Now, just knowing them and reciting them is one part. The other part, is more challenging and that is walking in them. And this is the most challenging. This morning in Sunday school class, Ron was giving us a a physical demonstration of repentance by turning around and saying, what's missing? Taking the step forward. It's one thing to turn around, it's another to step forward and start walking. We need to take these promises that God has given us, and we need to walk in them. We need to trust Him in them. If He says to do this, do that. If He says not to do something, don't do that. How many of us, when we face a trial or a tribulation or suffering or persecution, we try to find that person who might have the answer for us? Oh, I know so-and-so, and that's good. We need to have brothers and sisters in Christ that we can rely on to say, help me through this time. Lift me up in prayer. Let me tell you what's going on. But our first reaction should be to the Lord. Lord, you know all things. You know exactly what's going on in my life. How am I to proceed? Give me strength. Give me hope. Give me your promise. He will because he says he will. One of my favorite verses and one that came to me during a time of my suffering was, trust in the Lord with all thy heart. Do not lean under thy own understanding. We try to rationalize things, right? When we're in the midst of suffering. and Okay, why is this happening? Okay, let me get a dry erase board and let me start mapping this out. We do that. I do that. I brood. I try to figure it out. I lie awake at night. Lord, what are you doing? How can I get ahead of you? I don't say that, but that's what I'm trying to do, right? I'm trying to figure it out. Because once I figure it out, then I can fix it. Tim, I don't want you to fix it. I want you to rest in me. You're always trying to fix things. Calm down. Wait. I got this. And we need to understand something about suffering here, too. Sometimes we may not even understand why it's happening. And you know what? Maybe we're not supposed to at least in the beginning. It's like Joseph. You know the story of Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers to the Ishmaelites, right? And he went on to Egypt where he served in Potiphar's house, who was the captain of the guard under Pharaoh, and yet was falsely accused of sleeping with Potiphar's wife and sent to prison, until one day Pharaoh had a dream that nobody else could interpret except Joseph. He interpreted Pharaoh's dream of an incoming famine and that he was to take the first seven years of plenty, stockpile it, because there was gonna be a seven years of famine that followed it. And Pharaoh trusted him, gave him charge over across the whole land to stockpile food and prepare for the famine. And as the famine occurred within the first two years, his brothers left Canaan, came down to buy food. And who did they come across? their brother Joseph. And this is what Joseph said to him when he finally revealed who he was to his brothers. So it was, not you who sent me here, but God. In fact, Joseph repeats this again in verses 50 through 20 after, this, after his father dies, and his brothers feared that after his father died, he was going to kill him. And he said this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. See, we're going to go through times of suffering and we may not understand it, but understand God's doing work. He's behind the scenes. You may not know everything that's going on, but I guarantee you the Lord is working good for those who love Him and He loves you. That's another promise. Now, when we sanctify our hearts to the Lord, it does two things for us. The first thing it does is it allows us to combat fear. Fear used by here, Peter, means to be afraid and to be seized with alarm. Additionally, within the context of Peter's specific use here, is to fear is that which they inspire to fear in you. It's the same word used in Isaiah when he's speaking of the Assyrians who were trying to inflict fear into the Jews. So it's not only a fear that we have, but it's a fear that's being projected to us to possess. And fear is a natural response to suffering and persecution. Nobody desires to be hurt. Nobody desires to be afflicted. Nobody wants to to suffer and not understand what's coming. And what does it do? It generates fear. But if our heart is fully separated unto Christ, that fear... Can be removed because we trust in him because we trust in him have you ever been on a ride that you never been on before but then afterwards and it was you were kind of scared right i think of the ride at the state fair where they bungee jump you up in the air in that little cage or whatever right and you hear people screaming all the time anybody ever done that ride right nobody good praise god anyway <laughs> You're fearful before you go in there, and then afterwards, it's fun, right? Well, sometimes we're fearful of something that's coming. But after you go through it, and you were sustained by the Lord, and you were kept by the Lord, you look back and say, why did I fear that? That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Peter is saying here. That's what God's Word is saying here. Because it says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Another promise. Also, Psalms 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? And so when we have a sanctified heart, it helps us deal with that fear that comes with suffering and persecution. But it also gives us the ability to do something else. Number two, it, always, it gives us the ability to be able to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. It allows you to be a witness in the midst of your suffering. In the King James Version, it uses the word always to give an answer, which means to be apologetic. That's where we get the word apologetics. It's not a I'm sorry or an excuse response, but a defense of your faith. And it's not necessarily always doctrine either, but the hope that lies within you as you're going through suffering and persecution. Don't confuse apologetics as, oh, that's for the gifted and intelligent people, you know, the guys that have commentaries online. No. You were all been given the ability to Give an answer for the hope that lies within you based upon your testimony, based upon what you're going through, based upon what the Lord is showing you in the midst of your suffering and persecution. The greatest and most powerful witness we have is our testimony. The second most powerful is the witness we have during the midst of our suffering. How we stay hopeful, how we stay patient, how we can be at peace when it seems like our life is in turmoil. The world sees that. The world probably comes up to you and say, man, why are you taking that? What an opportunity to say, here's why. Because the Word of God says I am not to respond evil with evil, reviling for reviling. I put my hope and trust and faith in my Lord Jesus Christ. For he is my strength, he is my stronghold. Whom shall I fear? Let me share with you the person who's putting peace in my heart in the midst of this suffering that you don't understand because you don't know Jesus. Let me share him with you. It is a powerful testimony. An example of that is Paul in the Philippian jail. Remember, Paul was a Roman citizen and he had a few choice words after he was released about how he was incarcerated illegally as a Roman citizen. But when he came face to face with the Philippian jailer, in the midst of his suffering, singing songs and praising the Lord, because of that, he was allowed to bring the Philippian jailer to the Lord and his whole family. Paul didn't sit in prison and whine and complain. Praise the Lord. Lord's going to use this. He's going to do something powerful. I think it might be that Philippian jailer. I don't know if that's how Paul thought, but I guarantee you any interaction Paul had with any other prisoner or any guard in that prison was one of promoting and professing Christ. Because to Paul, it didn't matter. Jail, didn't matter. Home, didn't matter. On the road, didn't matter. Doesn't matter where I was. Doesn't matter what I was doing. I was always going to profess Christ and Him crucified we're to do the same. And we are how are we supposed to give that answer that hope of hope that lies within us? We're to do it gently and lovingly. You know, sometimes suffering and persecution can put an edge on a person can it? I know when my back really hurts and that's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about, but when my back really hurts, it really puts me on edge. And sometimes when we're in a stressful situation in life because of suffering and persecution, we tend to be a little edgy. But when we speak of the Lord, do it in gentleness. Do it in meekness. Do it in love. Show the peace that Christ has put in your heart. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The Lord will give you the words and the testimony. So the first one is to do good in the face of suffering and persecution. The second one is to sanctify your hearts, separate it unto the Lord. And the final encouragement that Peter provides us is keep a good conscience. Keep a good conscience. The word conscience means this. That innate faculty which urges us to do what our mind thinks is right and criticizes us when we do what our mind thinks is wrong. A clear conscience is one that doesn't bother us or criticize us concerning our behavior. Now, there's different types of conscience. The first one is a defiled conscience. We get this from Wearsby. I like what he says here. It's like a window that has gotten so dirty it cannot let the light in to see things clearly. Then there's the seared conscience. So sinned against, so so it no longer is sensitive to what is right and wrong. Remember I talked about the moral break? Yeah, you're putting it all the way to the floor and there's nothing happening. Then there's an evil conscience. Approves of the things that are bad and accuses of things that are good. You see people doing horrible, horrific things and you're going, where is their conscience? That's where it is. Where is Nero's? Right there. But then there's another one. And it's a strong conscience and a clear conscience. This is the conscience that is purified by way of Christ's blood. We find that in Hebrews 9.14. It's renewed by the teaching of the Holy Spirit and God's Word, where it's written on our hearts and provides a new truth. That's important to understand, by which it holds itself in judgment and action. Now, when I say it's important to understand that new truth, is because conscience... A conscience is only as good as the truth that it relies on. It's only as good as the truth that it relies on. If truth is so bad, if the truth is bad, so will our conscience be. But if truth is good, then the conscience is good because it will respond to that. And so when we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive a new conscience by the shed blood of Christ, by way of the Holy Spirit, and his word, and we need to rely on it. You know, before I was saved, <clears throat> I'd, I, I could care less. I know this is gonna be, sound small to you, but it's an important illustration. I could care less if I put that shopping cart away. When I became a Christian, I was like, no, I gotta put that shopping cart away, right? Because that's the right thing to do, right? And if I find two or three, then I'm finding two or three. Next thing you know, i am got 15 and people's handing me a reflective vest. I don't work here. <laughs> but that's the conscience. All of a sudden, I started to think to my, I can't do that anymore. And I was starting to be bothered by my conscience, which is the conviction of the Holy Spirit, because I was working against truth. And so the new truth that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ is now in our hearts. And now that's the conscience by which we operate by. And we need to respond in it. Martin Luther. Good old Martin Luther. God wants our conscience to be certain and sure that it's pleasing to Him. This cannot be done if the conscience is led by its own feelings, but only if it relies upon the Word of God. He hits on something very important. Conscience is not about your feelings. It's about truth. It's about truth. There's something about Being able to stand before an accusation, a slander, or suffering with a clear conscience before your accuser. It gives you strength. It gives you confidence. It gives you resolve. It gives you a steadfast spirit. And it puts the accuser to shame, as Peter would say. So always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God, with both God and man. You know, when Christ stood before the high priest and before Pontius Pilate, his conscience was clear. Within his heart was no guilt. There was no shame. There was no sin that contributed to his situation. He stood strengthened by the Holy Spirit, had a clear conscience towards his Father, and his own heart. As a result, those who condemned him were put to shame. Christ is our example in having a clear conscience. This morning, we we received three encouragements from Peter's scriptures, from the scriptures that Peter wrote. Whenever we face suffering or persecution... First, we are to be zealous for doing good. We are to honor Christ in our hearts, separating them unto Him. And when we do, we will have no fear in the face of persecution and suffering and we'll be ready to make a defense. And finally, we are to be encouraged to have a clear conscience, cleansed by the shed blood of Christ and based upon the truth of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what tomorrow brings. I know our brothers and sisters in Ukraine are facing it now, and our brothers and sisters around the world are facing it now. Every day we draw closer to the time of Christ's return. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall be, the second coming of the Lord, we will face suffering. We will face persecution at some point. The Word tells us that. How we deal with it, how we respond to it, will either bring glory to Christ, or it won't. These are the encouragements that the Word of God gives us. And this morning I pray that we would take heed of them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before You thanking You for Your Word, thanking You, Father, that it leads us, guides us, directs us. that it's